Well, good morning to you. It is lovely to be back with you. Uh, it's two years ago I got to speak at uh, the Refuel Retreat and got to do that again this time. So I got to hang out with your kids this week and we had a wonderful time. Uh, honestly, I love being at this church. Um, this is a, this, to me, it just is clear that there's health here at this church. I, I, I love it. I even love just the diversity of this church. Not everybody looks just like me. Uh, we, we, you even have a sweet kid from Hong Kong. I mean, that, come on, that's, that's diverse. That's really good. So um, if you would, open your Bible to 1 Peter 3. We're going to be sort of camped out there. With a, there will be a few uh, other places that we'll go, but if you, you, we just heard that, so you hopefully are already open to it. 1 Peter 3. And I have to apologize. I'm, I meant for it to be 13 through 17. Uh, but, and I, I thought, I just looked back, I thought, how did that mistake happen? Well, it's everywhere in my notes, so I'm, I'm sorry, but we will be going through 17 there as well. So, we live, it seems to me, in a crazy world. The world has gone a little bit crazy. Um, here's the reality. We have, as Christians, a, a host of values and beliefs. We have a worldview and the world is such now, it wasn't always this way, at least to the degree that it is now, the world is such now that it is hostile to our Christian values, to the Christian gospel, more than it has been for a long, long time. Right? Anybody amen that? <laughs> right? All it takes is to flip on the news, and we see this craziness that's going on, this craziness that is not in line with our Christian values. It used to be the case that you could have a discussion with people, and they might disagree with your Christian views or your Christian beliefs, but right, that, that would be okay to some degree. But these days, it's such that if you express Christian values, you're actually called names now. We're called bigots. Uh, it's sometimes labeled as hate speech. I just, I just read this this weekend that um, Gateway Seminary, one of our sister seminaries, has, has ha having to deal with Facebook because it got flagged for saying something to the effect that the Bible is our ultimate authority. And Facebook flagged it and wouldn't allow that post to come up, and then they had to defend themselves that they're not a hate group. That's the world we live in. That's the world. Uh, it's a world that is hostile to the Christian gospel. And so the... the um, and again, it wasn't always this way. It used to be the case that, you know, for the most part, people around us shared our Christian values, for the most part, right? It made it such that you could talk to people, and if you were trying to, you know, give them the gospel, uh, they would believe a lot of the things that you believe. They would actually probably have a pretty high view of Scripture, for example. Right? They would believe in God, and all, all, what they typically lacked was they had never given themselves to Christ in faith. Right? That was the one. So you could sort of just meet somebody on the street corner and share the gospel. And they maybe have heard that, hadn't heard that for the first time, but all of their other beliefs, all of their other values were in place. That was the one thing they lacked was to give their lives to Christ. Right? But it's not that way today. In fact, I had lunch with a uh, pretty famous, uh, in his day at least, evangelist. And he, t he was asked a question. We got to sort of sit around. There's a group of us getting to ask him questions. And the question was asked, um, 
what do you think of evangelism today? Why aren't there the Billy Grahams that are getting started today? Why aren't there like vocational evangelists that are going out and what they do? And now there's some, I, I shouldn't say there's none, there's some, but why don't we see that like we used to see that? And his answer was really insightful. He said, I don't think that Billy Graham would have become Billy Graham today. And it's just because for that very reason that the world has become what they say as post Christian. You don't, you meet somebody in the street corner, and I'm not sure how it is in Uvalde, Texas. It's probably a little different than Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, but my guess is it's not that different. My guess is you meet somebody on the street corner, and there's a pretty good chance they don't share hardly any of your Christian values. They may not believe in God. They may not have any kind of high view of this book. They may be like Facebook and think that that's actually some sort of hate speech to uh, see this as your ultimate authority. That's the hostility that's around us. Now, that's not so much new, and it shouldn't be so unexpected. If you would turn over to John 15, real quick, keep your thumb in. I know I just had you turn to 1 Peter, we didn't even read it, but turn over to John, keep your thumb there, and then turn over to John 15. Jesus told us, (laughs) he told us that the world will hate us. Told us to expect the world to hate us. John 15, the gospel of John 15, verse, starting in verse 18, Jesus speaking says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Now catch this. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So if you're not experiencing the hostility, that might be a problem. That might be a problem with where you're at, right? What Jesus is saying is that the world's going to hate you insofar as you're a follower of him. But if you're not really living in a way that's public as a follower of him and the world's not hating you, if you're not experiencing that kind of hostility, then that might be a commentary on you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. So really, in a way, we should expect the world to hate us. We should expect the kind of hostility, right, as Christians. But the question is, how do we live? How do we live as Christians in in, in the midst of a hostile world when it's coming in on all sides? And a lot of what I want to talk about this morning is the way in which our younger generation experiences that, right? Because again, it's a very, very new day. It's a new day of social media. It's a new day of interaction. It's a new day at the public schools. And just as a youth generation, it's a very new day, very different from the millennials and the Gen Z, because millennials are actually all in college at this point. I don't know if you knew that. We talk a lot about millennials. It's really the youth generation that we should be talking a lot about is Gen Z. All of my kids who happen to be up in the balcony right now, and that's not to get away from you, just so you know, um, our, our church used to, where we, um, our church used to have a balcony and that's, that was their favorite place to sit in church and they built a new building. It's all, you know, sort of modern and everything, no balcony. So they, they were excited to be up in the balcony, but they're up there. So, um, okay. All my kids are Gen Z. So anybody that's in high school and younger is Gen Z. And it's a very different generation from the millennials, right? <laughs> you maybe just kind of got a hold on what millennials are but I'm sorry, we're going to have to look at Gen Z. So how do we live in a, as Christians in a hostile world? Well, that's what Peter is engaged in in 1 Peter. Um, he starts out chapter 3, so you flip back over to 1 Peter 3. 
talking about how husbands and wives should relate together. He moves on to uh, how to be good to each other, how to love each other, to be compassionate and have a spirit of humility amongst each other. Then we pick it up in verse 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, by the way. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when, not if, when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Dear Father, we just thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for a church that values your word. And God, I pray that as we dive in, I pray that you would convict our hearts in just the ways in which we need our hearts convicted this morning. I pray that you would put your finger on something in our lives, some way in which we need to um, be in line with, with your word. And so we love you and we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we live as Christians in a hostile world? Well, the first thing I want to say is that we need to be devoted to what, uh, sorry, devoted to what is good, right? Devoted to doing good. Now, I, I know you didn't come to church today wondering, I wonder if I should do good to people, <laughs> right? That's kind of what we do in church. We tell you to do good, try tell you to be good people and that sort of a thing. But again, here's the picture is that you're in the midst of a hostile world. It's, Peter's not saying go out and, and get on a soapbox and preach at people. Now, there's a time for preaching, but some of your loudest uh, sermons, some of your loudest messages will come from being good to people by being kind to people, by being devoted to their needs and devoted to people just in this compassionate sort of way. Now, what does that look like? Well, it's hard to say, right? Because we don't want to compromise on our message. We don't want to compromise on our values and endorse anything. So I, I really don't know. I don't know how to tell you from the stage here what that looks like for you. It looks different for all of us, it seems to me. But the point is to be good to people, right? That's, we're going to talk a little bit about apologetics this morning. I think that's a powerful apologetic. It's just to be good to people, to be devoted, as Peter says, to doing good. Now, he, he says this as something of a practical advice, right? He, he starts the passage off here with a rhetorical question, who then will harm you if you are devoted to? to what is good. So it's sort of saying, look, if you don't want to have that sort of hostility and persecution and suffering, well, be good to people, right? Because who will harm you? Now, it's rhetorical in this sense that, you know, that might help some, but likely, and he goes on in the passage to say that you, it's, not, it's not if, it's when you will suffer. Uh, but then he goes on in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Right now, you might be wondering, how, is, how am I blessed? 
how is there a blessing in suffering? Well, what Peter is talking about, he's really just teaching Jesus. He's giving Jesus's teaching. He was a follower of Jesus. He walked and lived and, and, and uh, did life with Jesus. This is worth turning to. So turn over to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 10, in the uh, so-called Beatitudes, right? The Sermon on the Mount, the magisterial Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is contrasting often the way in which we typically think of how we should live in the world versus the Christian way, versus Jesus's way. And he goes through all these, you know, blessed are those, um, or blessed are thou, as some of your, your versions may read. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Right? Think about that contrast. We don't typically think of the humble as being blessed, but that's the sort of inversion Jesus is doing here. And then down into uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Right? So Peter's really just preaching Jesus. He's giving an exposition of this passage are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom. Now, but we get a why as well. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Verse 11, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the idea is, right, you're, the blessing comes because we have an eternal hope. It's not all about this life. In fact, it's really not about this life. It's about this eternal perspective, and you have an eternal hope. And when you find persecution here in this life, we should have our eyes set, fixed on that eternal hope, and that is a blessing as we, as we do that, as we head towards that eternal hope. The second way in order to live in a hostile world that Peter gives us here in 1 Peter 3 is to not fear people. And really, it's not to fear people or circumstances. It's not to fear what people fear. Now, I always sort of struggle with these sorts of passages because it's saying, don't fear. Well, that's not very helpful, right? Because it's, the problem is I am fearing. It's not like I make a choice that I think I'm going to fear today. Uh, I just find myself being afraid of something, of fearing something. But what we'll notice is that, and this is often in Scripture, that it, when you're giving a command like that, it's to say, don't do this by turning to this other thing. Don't fear people, because what we're going to say is, if you fear people, then that takes Christ out of being Lord of your life. right? Christ isn't Lord if you're fearing someone else. As I say here, giving in to fear displaces Christ from his rightful place in your life, right? Because if you're fearing people, you're not fearing the Lord. And that's kind of crazy if we start thinking about that, right? Why would I fear this person who can persecute me and hurt me? Yes, but not fear God in this greater sort of sense. And I don't know if that language bothers you at all. It used to kind of bother me to talk about fearing God, but it's actually a theme that runs from cover to cover. All throughout the Bible, we are told to fear God. In fact, the Old Testament passage that we read for this morning was that wisdom begins in the fear of God, right? And what does that mean to fear God? Sometimes people say, oh, it's just to have a respect, right? Um, 
And I want to say maybe. I mean, sort of, right? There's definitely respect, but I'm not sure that's quite enough. I know this. I know that as, as Christians, as children of God, we don't need to be fearing in the, you know, cowering in the, in the corner, uh, afraid that God's just going to strike us down. But here's why I think there should be a little bit of fear. God could strike you down if he wanted to. God being the creator of the universe and the sustainer of the universe means that he holds you into being at all moments. Let that sink in for just a second. He is big. He is powerful. And there's a sense in which we should approach God with a healthy kind of fear because of how big he is. Uh, I, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Any, any Narnia fans, any C.S. Lewis fans? In the, okay, good. Um, we're listening to this uh, on tape right now with the kids. And it's awesome. One of my favorite parts is when uh, the children haven't yet met Aslan the lion. And, they, and uh, I think it's Lucy who asks, um, is he safe? Right? And the response is, no. <laughs> no, he's not safe. He's a lion after all. But he's good. And I think that's a really pretty powerful picture, a really powerful, uh, uh, the right sort of approach to God in thinking, oh, look, this is, this is God, very God. We should fear him. And by virtue of that, we don't fear your boss or your coworker or your family member who's, who's, who's persecuting you or, or, or whatever the case may be, right? We wouldn't fear those circumstances if we have Christ in the right sort of place in our lives. Peter, in the, in the rest of the passage here, gives us a different sort of posture rather than that one of fear that displaces Christ. And what it is, it's making Christ Lord of our lives. Making Christ, and it's really, I say here, the one and only Lord of our lives. That word holy, right? we, we usually think of like morally holy or perfect or righteous, and that's, that's there. But the word holy really means set apart, really means uniquely one. And, and so by sanctifying Christ as Lord of our lives, making him holy, you know, the, the um, how does this read? Uh, the Christ, uh, regard Christ the Lord as holy. What we're doing is making him the one and only Lord of our lives, right? That is surrender. That is Christian surrender. That is Christian discipleship is making Christ our one and only Lord. Uh, the 19th century uh, British preacher says, Alexander McLaren says, only he who can say the Lord is the strength of my life can go on to say, of whom shall I be afraid? Right? So we turn away from the fear of people. Why? How can we possibly just not be afraid? It's because we fear in a healthy sort of way, Christ, our one and only Lord. Now, there's a lot here. There's a lot, lot to this. There's a lot we could say. And lordship and, and, and complete surrender to Christ, of course, that's just, you know, we could, we, could, we could be here for a long time. But the passage turns to ways in which I think we make Christ Lord of our lives. And part of this, uh, part of making Christ Lord is being able and ready to defend the gospel to this hostile world, right? And it's able and ready um, part of making Christ Lord of our lives is being able and ready to give a defense of the gospel. Right? Able, ready, 
in order to give a defense. Now, that word defense here in 1 Peter is the Greek word apologia, right, where we get with the, the sort of discipline we call apologetics. I get the privilege of teaching apologetic, apologetics at Southwestern Seminary. So you maybe heard that just so you know it's not the, you know, I don't teach students how to say sorry really well, right, and apologize. It's apologize in the sense of making a defense and really making a rational defense of the truth not just the truth, but the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christianity. That is apologetics. Now, how are we doing on that? How, are, are you ready this morning and able to give a rational defense of the hope that you have as a Christian? Unfortunately, as a church, I don't think we're in great shape here. I don't think we're in great shape. I don't think the typical Christian is just ready to give an account, to give a defense to give a case for the truth, goodness, and beauty of Christianity. What it's, been, what it's more like, and I'm going to pick on a song here, and my fear is uh, one time I'm going to go into a church and we're going to sing this song right before I get up. But um, I love the song, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not somebody that picks on songs because I think there is a bit of a creative license that we have in worship songs to express our thoughts and that sort of a thing. But the, the old song goes like this. You ask me how I know he lives... You ask me how I know he lives, right? Is that all right? Um, you ask me how I know he lives. The answer, he lives within my heart. Now, just look at that for a second. And tell me how that's an answer, actually. <laughs> I promise you, if your kids in the world that they live in, if they ask you how, how they, know, they should know that Christ lives, that he's risen from the dead, right? That, that crucial watershed issue. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if that event didn't happen, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then all of our faith is in vain. It all turns on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And your kid asks you, how do I know that's true? I hope you don't say, well, hey, it's just, he lives within my heart. I hope that when you wonder, did you do your taxes right? here in a bit. You don't say, well, I, I did it right in my heart. <laughs> right? Or if you're going to fix your car, or if you're going to do, right? Typically, we don't make our hearts <laughs> the standard for whether or not we have knowledge of something or not. Right? It's, it's going to be on the basis of evidence and truth. This is a, this is a you know, pro tip here. When you do your taxes, make sure it aligns with the truth of the tax code or whoever's doing your taxes. Okay. All right, but for some reason, we do this with faith. We do this with Christianity. We say it somehow comes down to something in our hearts. When I, I, now, again, I know what the song is saying. That's why I say I'm, I don't want you to think I'm just picking on the song and that the song should never be sung again. There is a kind of heart knowledge that we have of God, and I think that's what, it, that's what it's expressing. But I think too often we just leave it there. We just say, hey, it's just this heart thing. I'm sorry, that's, that's where it ends, right? And it's, re, it's produced a church where we don't think actually that Christianity provides objectively true answers to our issues. I think Christianity provides objectively true answers about how to do marriage well. I think Christianity provides objectively true answers for how to be a good business person, right? Or how to conduct your life. 
The Bible is relevant to every area of your life, and it provides objectively true answers that have never been refuted. I think, and this, in fact, I think what I spoke on when I was here two years ago, uh, a piece of it was that this book is so rich and so relevant to your whole life that there really is no thing that you can encounter that this book doesn't have insight to and really probably the solution to whatever the issue may be. We don't think of it that way these days. It's more of this private kind of thing. It's more of this heart thing. Hey, if you believe Christianity, that's okay. That's, that's, that's true for you. That's cool for you. You got that in your heart. But no, I think this is objectively true and relevant to every issue for every person. But because we've had that, here's what's happened. I talked about this this week with, with your kids at Camp Eagle. Our kids are walking away. Our kids are walking away from the church in droves. It's a big problem. It's a big problem that we talk about a lot at seminary. It's got a name. It's called the youth exodus. And here's the statistic that we're, we're encountering is that 60 to 80 percent and some, some studies have it higher, all the way up to around 88% of Christian youth are walking away from the faith, from the church, and they typically do it in college. Now, what's interesting, I used to say that all the time to people everywhere I go, to say, look, we've got to wake up. We've got we've to focus on this, especially as parents and grandparents with kids. We've got to figure out what's going on here, Right? But the real, you know what, what we've found in the studies that, that have been done on this is that most kids are making these decisions in junior high. So, and it's not to say it's ever too late. It's, not, it's never too late. However, we have to be raising kids with a robust Christian faith, a robust Christian worldview where they see this book as the answers to, to their issues in life and outlook from elementary because they're going to make a decision somewhere in junior high to walk away then they just sort of if they if they make the decision there they just sort of hang on through high school because they don't want grief from mom and dad and ralph right if they don't if they're not in church it's scary it's scary with as someone with four kids right because i can do the math What it's produced is Christianity is largely irrelevant to the culture, right? We don't have a say. There's, there's many of us. We have a high percentage of our, the U.S. population would identify as Christians. And yet, how often do you see your values on display in the culture, in the movies we watch, in the t- you know, TV shows, your politicians acting like Christians ever, <laughs> Right? Why? Well, we've just become largely irrelevant because we've given it up. We've made it a heart thing, a private thing, a personal thing, rather than the objective truth that we preach with all that's within us. Rather than this posture, here's one last passage to turn to is Matthew 22. Now, I remember me- memorizing this passage in high school. Uh, I was on a, on, with a group where we did a lot of uh, Bible memorization And I memorized Matthew 22, verses 37, really through 39. And there was a little piece here that I blew past, apparently, because I never really realized it until I really started to look at these issues. Jesus is being tested. 
right? And, he, and, he, and he's refuting people with logic and argument in, in, in chapter 22. You can read that at some other point. He's refuting people with logic. <laughs> we don't talk about that a lot, that Jesus was a terrific logician and rhetorician. And then Jesus asks, hey, what's the most important thing? What's the, what's the most important commandment out of all of the Jewish commands, right? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commands with commands that were created to sort of block, you know, and buffer the actual commands, right? They, they, they didn't want to get close to breaking the commands as, as a good Jew. And Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? And he says this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all your what mind what does that mean what does it mean even to love god with all of our mind this is the greatest and most important commandment out of the out of the lips of jesus he's telling us to love god with all of our heart with all of our soul and with all of our minds now i think the picture is honestly it's not like we have a list and say, okay, I've got heart, I've got soul, let me get mine, okay, I got mine, and we check it off the list. Jesus is saying, look, love God with all of who you are, every ounce of who you are, everything that makes up being you, you should be loving God with those things. But here's the thing, is that there's a big piece of you that is rationality, that is your intellectual side, that is your mindful side of who you are. And we will devote ourselves with our minds to doing our taxes, to do, fixing our cars, to doing whatever it is you do as a job. <laughs> it's tax time, so that just kind of works well, right? Um, we'll use our minds. We'll, we will get educated on those things. And then we walk in here and we seem to think that's not part of this. Right? We don't need to. That's the pastor's job. That's Ralph's job. That's the professor's job. That's the, you know, Christian with the big brains job or whatever it is. Um, apologetics. That's not me. I'm just not into apologetics. Well, I'm sorry. That's not an option here. Right. Part of loving God with all of who you are is having a rational part to your faith, a rational part to your faith. And I think that fits in here. I think it's much more than um, apologetics. It's also theology, right? If you were to take a theology test, how would you do? How would we do? How would I do, right? Are you loving God? Are you approaching God with your mind, with your intellect? Okay, if we, as we turn, we're going to sort of drill into First Peter now, uh, verse 15. Peter says, describes this posture of sanctifying Christ as Lord of our lives, he describes it, there's, this, there's a readiness. We're called to be ready. Ready at any time to give a defense. That's that word apologia, apologetics. To give an apologetic to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Let me make a few more comments about this passage. One is to say that this is for all of us. We are all called to make a defense, right? Peter's not addressing pastors or church leaders even. Right. The, the previous passage, he's talking about husbands and wives and he's talking about us being in the midst of a hostile world. And then he describes you making Christ Lord of your lives. Part of that is being ready at any time 
to give a, give a defense for the hope that is in you. So this is for all of us. I'm sorry. Now, this is this. I also like to mention this is there's no better time to get ready. Right. We've got apologetics books at every level. We've got guys that were a friend of mine who was a, a cold case detective. He, he was an atheist and he tried to disprove Christianity and got saved out of that process. Right. This is kind of a typical story that you hear. Josh McDowell's story is similar as a journalist. Right now he's writing books and he speaks all over of taking his cold case detective skills to present apologetics and train people in apologetics. That's great. Right? It's not overly academic. You don't need a degree. I think part of the problem with apologetics is that it used to be the case you sort of had to have a degree just to follow the discussion. But these days it's not. In fact, we've got I just saw another um, another uh, post about a worldview and apologetics curriculum aimed at third through sixth graders at third, third through sixth graders. Right. Again, that's hitting that key demographic at that key age before they hit the junior high years and make the decisions that's going to affect them for their lives. So it's a, it, we, there's even an app. There's even an apologetics app. Come on. All right. You can get an app on your phone to help you know the answers as you give a defense for the hope that is with you. So this is for all of us. And there's really no excuses these days because of how accessible and how much material there is. And hey, if you want the academic Come talk to me. Southwestern is leading on that issue uh, in our degrees for apologetics. Secondly, what we see here is the call is to be ready. It's interesting, right? Because the call is not here to go out and just find somebody that you can defend the hope that's within you. It's a readiness. It's a preparedness that we're called to. It's, I think, that, that implies that as a church, we need to be doing these things. We need to have Sunday school classes where we are able to ask these questions and get ready uh, uh, to defend the hope that's within us, right? It's a readiness. Um, but when we ask, how do we get ready? Well, let me give you a couple tips for that, too. One thing I like to say is we should ask these questions for ourselves. We tend to do these things where we say, uh, we tend to do this. We wait till we're sort of like berated at church. I'm sorry, at our workplace or wherever else or a family member at Thanksgiving. Right? It just keeps giving you this problem on your Christian faith or belief or something. And then we ask these questions. But I think we should sit around as Christians and say, you know what is hard for me to understand? This passage here where God wipes out the Canaanites, for example. How should I think of that? that that's a question I have. I don't know about you, but I, as a seminary professor, have a number of questions that I haven't fully worked out yet. I'm still working it out. I know the answers are here, right? But we should be asking these questions for ourselves first and foremost as a church. How do we understand the terrorist shooting just of the last week? Right? How, how could God allow so many people to be gunned down in the way or, uh, you know, a hurricane or a tsunami or, or some sort of natural disaster. How does God allow that level of pain and suffering? That's a difficult issue. How well would you do if you were called to give a defense of the hope on that issue? Right? We should be sitting around having these conversations. It's not, again, for the pastor and the professor. This is for all of us to think about. And now here's, my, here's a, an important piece of this is do this in community. Seek answers to these questions in community. It's hard to do this alone. 
It's, now, I think you should do, it, do reading and things like that, but do it with friends, especially do it with somebody who is a bit further along than you are, and I think you'll find your own faith growing by leaps and bounds. Now, Peter gives us a caution here in 1 Peter 3, um, 13 through 16, 13 through 17, sorry. And that is that apologetics can be misused. Apologetics can be used in this sort of way, misused in this way, where somebody has a genuine question and we come in with our apologetics cannons and just unleash on them, right? And we beat them down with our arguments. But Peter says, look, no, look, this should be done in a particular sort of way with a particular sort of attitude. We need to be gentle. We need to do this respectfully. Right? And I love that. I love that. And again, I, 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 com- I commend that sort of attitude to you, especially with your kids. Uh, encourage them to ask crazy questions. We have a rule in our household that they can ask any question that they want to. <laughs> Sometimes the older kids need to just, you know, we'll say, we'll talk to you later when the little ones aren't around. Uh, but they can ask any uncomfortable question that they want to because I want it to be the case that by the time they get out to a college campus or the time they get into a, a, a job where they've got somebody who's, who's raising objections to their Christian faith and so on, I want that to feel very familiar. They've already asked those questions, right? We've, we've been talking about that for years, um, Right, So we do that, we, we allow the questions, we allow people to ask and talk, and we engage in dialogue in this gentle and respectful sort of way. And I have found, it's, it's a little ironic, but when I foster that kind of attitude, it's actually far more powerful. When I come guns blazing, what happens is people's defenses go up, and it doesn't matter how good your arguments are. Right? They're not going to hear it. They're not going to be talked into. That's why these formal debates never go very well. Right? Nobody ever changes their mind. Why? Because their defenses are on high. But when you get to sit down with someone and just dialogue about the issues, and by the way, you've been asked these questions for yourself because you're, you, you're ready. You've been prepared. You're ready to give a defense of the hope that's within you. Man, that's fun. That's awesome. You sit back down with somebody of a different worldview, atheist or whatever different religion and you're just having questions and you're able to say you're able to sort of like say ah that's a really good question let me let me tell you how i deal with that passage let me tell you how i think about the problem of pain and evil and suffering in the world that's that's powerful witness right there right we don't want to win win the debate only to lose someone's soul so let me just give you in, in closing just a few application points here one is to be devoted to what is good. Right? It's a powerful apologetic just to be kind, just to be good to people, just to look for ways in which you can, you can meet needs of people who are hurting or, or uh, in need of something around you. Be devoted to what is good. Secondly, pursue the Lord with all of who you are. Truly make him Lord of your life, Lord of your heart pursuits, of your soul and of your of your mind, right? Of your intellect, that you would be seeking to know him in a deep and profound way. That's going to require, it seems to me, asking the deep and profound questions. And thirdly, be ready to tell everyone. Let's pray.